0: Welcome to another episode of the Inspirational Insights podcast, which is basically intended to help people move through adverse conditions. Today, we're talking about closing the polarities created by that didn't match the environment. Let me put it that way, as gently <laughs> as I possibly could. <laughs> With me is Kathy Giordano. Kathy is the author of Building Trust and Relationships, which is really important because we're looking at it through the lens of worldview. My interest in worldview popped out of organizational network analysis. During the course of that, I learned that the network structures that we live in, operate in, function in, mostly unconsciously. I think it's safe to say, also contain and hold the worldview. I certainly witnessed that in a town that my daughter lives in. I'd witnessed certain behaviors and thought, hmm, this is interesting. There's something bigger going on here. This propelled the question of if we understand worldview, ours is and what the collective is, can we deal with these polarized situations and positions that have emerged out of the COVID interruption, out of people having differences of opinion with one another, out of the need to embrace diversity, fully embrace a different worldview because mainstream has dominated so much and we're missing a lot by that. Kathy's and her colleague, Jerry Nagel, co-founded Worldview of Intelligence and she's co-authored the book, the Building Trust in Relationships at the Speed of Change. She's worked with clients and stakeholders on the practical stuff, direction, operational planning, innovation, community engagement, leading change, and building team coherence. These conversations sound very lofty, but in reality, they're extremely practical. If you are in an organization, if you're part of a community, if you are trying to have a conversation, an exploratory conversation with someone in your family or someone outside of your family, and you run into walls understanding worldview is incredibly relevant. Kathy has also written a really interesting memoir called Embracing the Stranger in Me, A Journey to Open Heartedness. That's a beautiful title because openheartedness is, is a key to navigating today's world in any kind of responsible way. Kathy lives in Nova Scotia, which on the other end of Canada, I'm on the West Coast. She's on the East Coast. Kathy, can we get into... Uh, the conversation around, first of all, what the meaning of worldview is. Let's give the listeners a bit of an understanding of what we're talking about here. Do I have one? Do I have more than one? Is there more than one? <laughs> what, how exactly do we, how do we see this?
1: Thank you, Donna. And first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me into this conversation with you. We're always looking for where the alignments are with people who are doing similar kinds of things I've said for a long time, the world needs all of us who are walking these pathways and it feels more true than ever. You said a lot in your opening remarks. I just want to pull the threads of those and explore them more deeply, but I will start with worldviews and what they are from our experience, which is that everybody does have a worldview. Every single individual, teams, organizations, communities, cultures, we all have worldviews. I like that you said mostly unconsciously because it's true about our worldviews. They operate largely in our unawareness and they influence our relationships, our communication, conflict or tension that we might be experiencing without us being aware of it. Worldviews are the lenses through which we each see and experience the world. And it's different for all of us because we have all had some unique influences on our worldviews. Individually, we have multiple worldviews. I like to think about them as the core essence of what makes up a worldview. But when we're in a personal situation or a professional situation or a social s- situation, we might draw on different aspects or elements of our worldviews. Our worldviews are complex, they're multidimensional. One of the ways or places we fall into trouble when we think about worldviews is because we want to simplify everything. And so we tend to think about individuals or groups of people or communities as having just one aspect to them or one dimension. None of us wants to believe that we're just one dimension. We all recognize our own uniqueness. So to be able to recognize that in someone else is actually a big step forward. Fully
0: agree with that. Having traveled around the world a couple of times, I've observed that people can travel and not ever get out of their worldview, not ever see the culture, feel the culture, step mm-hmm. into it. Or you have the option of looking at the world through a different perspective. It's so much richer, in my experience at least, when you can yeah. do that.
1: Yeah. It's actually reminding me of a comment I heard many years ago, which is when we're traveling, do we travel as a tourist or do we travel as a pilgrim? The tourist is seeing what's on the surface, and the pilgrim is really willing to open their eyes and see what's available to them.
0: Absolutely true in my wanderings, for sure. One of the things that, that I'm troubled by is that when we look at workplaces, when we look at society, we've divided them up into different age groups or different worldview, Gen Z, millennials, mm-hmm. boomer. Are these worldviews, because here's my logic behind it, I would love to see us be able to work together on some of the big problems of the world. Mm-hmm. And because we've got these clusters of groups and one group doesn't know how to talk to another group. Seems to me that's a worldview intelligence question. Seems to me that if we could get through that division of, well, they're different, can we get past this fixed notion of who people are and get back to curiosity and collaboration on some of these bigger issues?
1: I'm glad you used the word curiosity. It's one we use all of the time because we say that curiosity and judgment cannot exist in the same space. So if you notice yourself becoming judgmental, or if you're dismissing somebody else's point of view, or you're becoming defensive about your own, then that's a really good place to bring the curiosity. We say, bring it in two ways. Bring the curiosity to yourself. What's going on within you? What are you reacting to? And bring your curiosity to the other person or group to try to understand why they're saying or doing doing the things that they are. And that simple practice in and of itself can go a long way towards creating a pause and then inviting a conversation. When you're talking about the different generational influences, I go back to, we want to think about people in simplistic terms. And so we'll take a whole generation of people and ascribe certain characteristics to them or certain worldviews to them, as opposed to being open to what is the full expression of a generation or the full expression of a community or a culture. We always talk about how do we make connections? How do we bridge differences? And how do we open those exploratory conversations? The first thing is to let go of the assumptions that we're making. We're always making assumptions. Assumptions are part of our worldviews. If we can recognize that we've made some assumptions and then just set them aside, that puts us in a better place to be able to open those conversations. That also makes me think about brain and behavioral science, because one of the things that we know about the brain is that the brain operates in patterns. The brain wants to be lazy. It wants to take the least amount of effort possible. So it's predisposed to set us up to thinking in these patterns and with assumptions. We're kind of working a little bit against the force of our own brains when we begin to set these stages for curiosity.
0: That makes sense. The brain is there to conserve energy because it's trying to look after you. So it's going to do that in the most expedient way possible. One way to do that is to keep the pattern. (laughs) Just hold that in place. Which is why when you have some kind of novel interruption, uh, mm-hmm. like a pandemic or any other life's interruption, even a massive opportunity to start exploring more about who you are and what's going on. I think it's more than that though. It's also let's look at the context we're in. One yes. of the other parts of it too, that I've been thinking about is holding the space The term you've used. It's a term we use yeah. in facilitation work when you've got different generations and there's been a lot of judgment, which I find useless yeah. between boomers and any other generation and the other generations that came before there's been Mm -hmm. a lot of judgment around that and how can we change that how can we stop that shift that into a conversation an exploratory conversation where we can actually learn from one another and then eventually start looking at how we can work together
1: I'm with you. I've heard various comments about different generations and, in particular, about younger generations. I've heard people just throw out these comments like they have no work ethic, they have no loyalty without thinking about one, why they might not have loyalty, and two, what does work ethic mean? Because the world has been pretty dominated by a baby boomer point of view and baby boomers. Really, we taught to work hard and to be very competitive and to sacrifice home life balance for work. For some time now, I've had younger generations come along going, yep, yeah, nope, I don't see the benefit in that. I'm going to put my family first. So we ascribe different characteristics to a generation that don't exist. My own children are in the Gen X um. Gen Z category, millennials, and they work hard. They've got jobs, they put in effort. And fortunately in my situation with my kids, they're working in environments where they're pretty supported in good work-life balance. All the millennials that I know are all working really hard, allowing ourselves to have our worldviews challenged is one way to start bridging some of the difference. One of the things that I wanted to mention, especially when you talked about the polarized situations, is that the psychological research tells us that our worldviews are very closely associated with our sense of identity. When our sense of identity is challenged, we respond as if our life is threatened. One of the things that happens then is that we have an attachment to our worldviews because they are an expression of who we are, when someone presents us with information that challenges our worldview, we rarely go, oh, that's really interesting. Let me think about that. Let me adjust my perspective. We become defensive. And then the more defensive we become, the more attached we become to our worldviews. When we're in these polarized situations, there's no bridging because each party is wanting to defend their own worldview perspective, the more we do that, then the the more attached we become to the perspective that we hold. How do we open that up? Part of it is what we've been saying about curiosity. And the other is there has to be at least one of the parties in these conversations who's willing to step out of the dynamic And really listen. There's a a couple of resources that I've been looking at lately. One is how minds change. And another one I just heard of yesterday, which is about uh, people who can persuade. One of the interesting things in both of those scenarios is listen more than you talk and ask questions, not to be the inquisition, not to be like that, but to be really curious about how someone has come to see and experience the world the way they do and to invite people into their own analysis or their own reflection. One of the things when we're really attached to our worldviews is we're very certain about it. We can introduce some doubt not by arguing with someone, but by drawing out their perspectives. Then we begin to loosen up that polarity a little bit.
0: We've got quite a job ahead of us to close that polarity gap with what's happened in the last couple of years. It's going to take a certain level of boldness and and heart, a lot of heart, and some courage to do that. When you are working with organizations and you've got different worldviews within an organization, is there an opening question that gets asked? How do you open these exploratory conversations so that we can actually learn from each other instead of just
1: get into combative mode? One of the things that we do is try to give people an experience of their worldview and action. This can happen in a couple of ways. One is we show images there's this picture that was widely circulated on the internet of kids with in an art gallery all looking at their phones. We'll often show this picture to people and their immediate reaction is, kids, technology, they're missing out on life that's happening right in front of them. And then we share with them that these are kids who are on an interactive app as they're touring the art gallery, learning about the paintings, and it gives people pause. And we have another, a number of different images like that we will show. We have a number of activities that we invite people into where they can begin to see the assumptions that they're bringing from their worldviews into a discussion, part of it is just beginning to open up that. The other thing that that we do, and I would say we've happened upon this almost by accident, is we issue this invitation into curiosity. The first point of curiosity is, what is my worldview? What's it comprised of? How have I come to see and experience the world the way that I have? It seems that by being curious about my worldview first, then I have a greater capacity to bring curiosity to someone else's worldview and invite that conversation rather than start with an argument. We find that if we start with difference, we amplify difference. When we start with looking for points of connection, then people can explore the difference from a very different perspective. We have a framework. It's a six dimensions framework, which has reality history, future, values, practices, and knowledge. Each of those dimensions illuminates one aspect of our worldview, and they're interdependent. We'll often do a history exercise where we ask people to reflect on who or what has been an influence in their worldview, and that could include people. It could include events. It could include books or movies, and it could include global events like the pandemic or 911 in the US. And as people reflect on influences in their worldviews and then they share that with other people, that's where they begin to find these points of connection. It can be an incredibly powerful exercise for people. Part of the answer to your question, after all the things that I just said, is that invitation into a story. To share with another person and the shortest distance between two people is a story. Mm -hmm.
0: I love that phrase.
1: That really captures
0: it it nicely. To actually listen to someone's story. I I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had like that, that have been so random and spontaneous. I'm riding a ferry to a location on the West Coast and somebody will sit down and tell me their life story. And wow, what a gift to be trusted with that in the moment is spectacularly that's the value. It's this appreciation for who we are as humans and how we evolve and how we evolve our thinking. I think there's a bridge, and I'm still working with this, between worldview consciousness, our frame for seeing things and elevating our frame so that we can move from duality, you know, right and wrong to something that observes what's going on. I think that's another powerful part of it, which is what worldview touches on as well. Just the process of reflection would take you there if nothing else does.
1: Yeah. And you know, Donna, I think one of the most hopeful things, and I'm finding more of this even more recently, is that our worldview shift and change. And if you ask someone to identify moments when their worldview is shifted, they might identify travel or big life events, they went to university, or they left their hometown, they got married or became a grandparent, or the case may be. And then as they begin to think about how their worldview shifted and changed. They recognize that our worldviews do shift and change. And if it changes without us consciously trying to do that, then we have that opportunity to be intentional about it and to be intentional about the worldview perspectives we choose to hold. I've known this for a long time, since we started this worldview work almost a decade ago. But what I'm finding even more encouraging recently, given the state of the world at the moment is how often that actually happens in more minor and subtle ways without us being aware of it. So our worldviews are not fixed. They are actually changing all of the time. If we can become aware of how our worldview shifts, then I think we can hold that space for other people to begin to see maybe some of their own worldview shifts as well. That's a really powerful opportunity that we have, even with the, just the awareness that everyone has a worldview.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's operated on unconsciously. I've walked into those defensive systems mm-hmm. and actually by the four of them, I'm going, wait a minute, that's not me. What's going on here? So the self-reflection sometimes takes a while unfortunately, but it can (laughs) also happen in the moment. In my training, I've been trying to observe myself in the dynamic I'm in and say, what the heck's driving Mm -hmm. my behavior here? Because there's something unconscious working on me and I need to identify it. Then it can't do that anymore. (laughs) I could take steps to reclaim my agency in the moment. You mentioned intentionality, and I'm really excited about that because one of the things that allows us to be really effective organizational ecologists. Leaders and project managers, it doesn't matter really what role you're playing, is the capacity to be clear and intentional about what you're doing. And that's what separates mm-hmm. trust situations from lack of trust situations. Yeah. One of my colleagues yesterday in a conversation said we've lost the truth. People can lie in organizations and get rewarded for it.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: when we go to building trust and exploring Tory conversations that allow us to see our own worldview within having the conversation with ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or whether we're having it with others, what's going on with trust in those moments? What role does trust play in trusting oneself to have these conversations, in trusting others to have it with you? How does that play
1: in? Yeah, I love that question. In our book, Building Trust and Relationship at the Speed of Change, we talk about trust and relationship as being both a noun and a verb trust is an act and behavior and an action. Sometimes I want to ask that question, do do I give another person someone they can trust in me? And of course, trust is interesting because sometimes we can trust people to not show up in a good way. We can trust them to be a bad actor. But when we're talking about the kinds of things that we're talking about, do you have a predisposition to automatically trust first Or is trust something that gets built over time? Then there's this question of what happens when we lose trust. It's so much harder to bring it back. In the courses that we've run where we've been asking people about whether they trust first or do they have to build it? The people we've been working with have a predisposition to want to have some basic level of trust first. So you don't have to prove yourself to me in order for me to trust, but we build a deeper trust as we go. It's such an interesting question when we look at our political structures We look at leadership in our organizations, especially right now, when we've got a few organizations that are imploding, there never was trust there to begin with. If we go back to loyalty, organizations have not been loyal to their employees. That's a big, broad statement, but for a really long time, like since the time that my parents were in the workforce, my, or my dad If we want to do the kind of work in the world that you and I do in the world, we have to trust ourselves. We have to work in these circles of trust as much as possible. We want to work within relationships where people will build us up and not tear us down, but build us up authentically, like support when we're doing really well. People think they don't have time for trust and they don't have time to build relationship. It goes back to what you said about intentional. When we titled the book, At the Speed of Change, people perceive time to be the enemy. And yet to be intentional takes almost no time at all. It takes that pause, turn your full attention to somebody else so that they see that you're interested in them as a person and in what they have to contribute, then that contributes to building the trust and building relationship. It's a mythology that we've created that we don't have time. We have time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you're maintaining the mantra that you don't have time, you're really sabotaging your experience because we are fully responsible for the experience we have with this life. My way of coming at it is every opportunity we get, whether it's nasty or pleasant, it doesn't really matter, but it's a chance for us to, to shape how we experience it. And to be better for the world. Being human isn't that easy. And being (laughs) humans together is even tougher. It seems to me what we're doing here is learning how to be better at being human, but also for the world. The loss of biodiversity, the planet, the disconnection with the natural system that we rely on. uh, To me, that's extremely naive. And and I think we can be more intelligent about it. I believe that uh, understanding worldviews is certainly one doorway. So uh, I'm excited by our conversation and what the potential is. Going forward in your experience, can you give us an example where you've seen a shift either from blindly, unconsciously moving through life to someone who's actually succeeded in uh, obtaining enough awareness that they can be intentional? I hate to say it, but there are people that are being intentional about being evil, but there's equally people who are being intentional about being doing great things and bringing compassion and empathy to the
1: world. What have you seen? We've seen that show up in a variety of circumstances. I'll just give you a couple of examples, mostly from the client work that we've done. We worked some time ago with a large uh, reinsurance company based in Bermuda. Their head office is in Bermuda. There was a team responsible for innovation. They were a relatively new team put together, and there were a lot of competing agendas within the team and a lot of, of conflict. One of the things that they were trying to do was bring this team together to align their worldviews so they could actually do the work that they needed to do within the organization. So we started with some basic introductions to worldviews and worldview intelligence and invited them into that personal reflection and some conversations. We led up to go into your teams. There was a big team, but within the team, there were like four or five smaller teams responsible for different areas of the work that they do. We knew that within those smaller teams, there was conflict between individuals and the teams. We know because they told us that there was some apprehension going into those conversations, but because they now had the six dimensions framework to work with and the concept of worldviews, they found themselves more able to explore the challenges within their smaller teams in a way that was constructive and productive Through that, they also found that they had far more in common than they had that divided them. We worked with them for two days. By the end of those two days, their relationships were stronger, trust was higher, and they were able to be more effective at the work that they were doing. They were surprised. They didn't expect that outcome. They hoped for it, but didn't know that they would get it. A second example that I can give you is we work with a large healthcare organization in the United States that's been growing through mergers and acquisitions. The main company that we were working with, or the main partner, was the one doing all the acquiring. They're an acute care organization. They acquired a long-term care organization. Right away, we can see that there's two very different worldviews at play there. We worked with their learning and development team and Again, there was a lot of trepidation about what those relationships were going to be like, how much was going to be dictated across the organization, whether or not they were going to find their place together. Same kind of process, introduction to worldviews, thinking particularly about the work that was in front of them and the number of teams that they had to pull together and the goals and objectives of how those teams would work post-merger. By the end of it, people discovered that. They could build connection. They had trust and they felt like they had come together as one larger team to be able to do the work that was in front of them, feeling that both elements of this merged organization had value that they were bringing to the conversations and that it was acknowledged. Less was imposed and more was co-created in those situations. So those are organizational.
0: The other example that I can readily think of is just the conversation between generations at Mm -hmm. home. You've got parents that are having trouble understanding what their kids are doing and rather than disconnect and marginalize, which is a, a temptation because it's easy. You don't have to do anything, but it's to step into the conversation and explore it a bit and find out what's going on. I think there's so much learning to be had from that. But there has to be, at the same time, a value for learning.
1: I want to pick up on this point that you were making, Donna, about the generations in these conversations in our homes. I'm 60 years old. I grew up in an era of children are to be seen and not heard. (laughs) I brought a different parenting lens to my kids. And my kids with kids, they're in their 30s. The little ones are under five. How my parents parented, how I parented, how my kids are parenting is all different. Because the worldview experiences that we're in, that we were in, and that we are in are different. I was just thinking about the worldview of trauma informed lenses on Mm -hmm. our families, intergenerational trauma, trauma that's been imposed on various populations. Thinking about all of that, thinking about the rising incidence of anxiety orders and things like attention deficit and all of that, it's could be easy from someone in my generation to go, oh, that's just all made up because it didn't exist. Um, Or you could begin to go, the worldview of where we are right now in time is changing and shifting. The experiences are all different. Technology and the access to immediate information, whether it's true or it's not true, is just one of those examples. Being willing to acknowledge that there are different worldview influences in this decade where we are right now can make a huge difference in opening up some of those conversations. I
0: think it's critically important as well for a whole lack of reasons. Thank you. It's funny because in reflecting on where worldview fits and how it connects with consciousness, how it connects with network structures. And how it connects with biology. Because when I think about worldviews, I think about the subconscious beliefs absorbed from zero to six, and then the beliefs that get stacked on from trying to make sense out of our experience. There's the transgenerational informant as well, Mm -hmm. unless you actually do that reflective work and you unpack it a bit and find out what are my decisions being driven by? What beliefs did I just plug in to that at a millisecond speed? what's going on here, that is another element of this process of reflection is to be able to say, what are the patterns that I rely on to mm-hmm. make my decisions easy? I can believe in this. Right. You can let that belief run amok and limit or inspire depending on what you do with it. It's that responsibility to use the trauma, to use right. these beliefs that have been running around unobserved for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. Use those to greater effect, I think, to become more capable, if you will, of navigating quite calmly Mm -hmm. through what is essentially a chaotic world at the moment.
1: That's my view on it. I don't know what your take would be. but (laughs) No, mine is very similar to yours. And the other bit of good news, in addition to our worldviews are shifting and changing all of the time anyway, is that our brains also have the ability to grow and shift, knowing that we can develop these new neural pathways, these new ways to think about our assumptions and our patterns and change them to me is also really good news.
0: Yeah. I think we're far more powerful than we let ourselves think. We're far more capable of shifting the context. This is where I think contextual awareness is really big for me from a decision-making point of view, from a just consciousness point of view, just just what's going on in this context that's
1: having an impact on me knowingly or unknowingly. I would agree. Just that willingness to embrace our own power and our own agency in the world can make a difference close by and sometimes further away.
0: The other term that came up in a book I'm reading by Scott Barry Kaufman called uh, mm-hmm. learned helplessness, you know, mm-hmm. learn to be helpless. There's an element of that working in the bigger world when we stare at climate change and some of these issues, you just don't know how to wrap your arms around. And yet we also know that everybody taking a piece of the puzzle,
1: if you have mm-hmm. a great effect. Thank you for inviting me into this conversation with you.
0: Well, thank you. This happened because I was starting noodling in my head on what's worldview got to do with consciousness? What's it got to do with network structure? How can we work with a different way of seeing? How can we work with shifting our perspective on ourselves and on what's going on in the world to really close some of these big gaps? <laughs> Thank you very much, Kathy, and I really appreciate you. I t- contacted Kathy yesterday for this because I thought, oh, we got to talk about this and see how these pieces all fit. Thank you very much for doing that. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. There's a lot of judgment toward different generational points of view and ways of seeing things that don't necessarily match up with our own way. I mark this as an opportunity to un- uh, suspend that judgment and to step into a more profound conversation about what we can learn from each other. I truly believe that this is a time more than ever where we need to work together on these big issues. The more we can work cross-generationally, the the better chance we have of coming to terms with racism, many of the isms, actually, and and learning and working in a way that brings out the best in people. There's different consciousness emerging in every new generation. Understanding worldview is at least one door, one lens that we can use to see what is going on underneath the surface, connect across difference, and focus on bigger goals, ones that affect every single person, whether you like them or agree with them or not. Tap into that creative talent that every single one of us has and that we all need in order to build a better world. You'll find my newsletter on Substack, Under Navigating Uncertainty on Substack, you'll find organizational change, transformation, network analysis, and those headier professional (laughs) topics relevant to change agents, transformational projects, and initiatives. I'm also starting to write on Medium again, but this will be more personal development, -development, self-development, self-actualization Connect me on LinkedIn at D-A-W-N-A-H Jones. Please share this episode and subscribe to the podcast.